From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality is our annual baseball show. With the 2017 season upon us, why is baseball's opening day still special to so many? And what is the state of the game? Joining me to answer these questions and others is George Mitrovich of the great Fenway Park Writer Series and my good friend, Johnny Costa. That's coming up on The Public Morality. But Miss Kate said no, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball game, take me out with the crowd, buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I ever get back, cause it's root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame, cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome to the public morality. I proudly tout myself as among the legions for whom baseball is a passion. As a young boy, I was given my father's blessings to miss school so that I could attend opening day, largely due to the fact that he was sitting next to me missing work. In the words of columnist George Will, it is said baseball is only a game. True. And the Grand Canyon is only a hole in Arizona. Not all holes in games are created equal. To begin our conversation on baseball is George Mitrovich. Mitrovich is chairman of the great Fenway Park Writer Series. And I'm honored to have him back on The Public Morality. George Mitrovich, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, sir. An honor to be back with you. Uh, well, here we are uh, a week before opening day. Uh, what does opening day mean in the American culture, and why is it different from other sports that have opening days? Well, because baseball is America's game. Uh, and I don't think any other game approaches it in terms of history, in terms of its meaning in our culture, in our society, and indeed in, in terms of our history. I mean, it goes back a long way. When the Red Sox open next Monday against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Fenway Park, that will mark the 116th opening. And there were a lot of teams around before the Red Sox ever even played a game or were organized. And I know you know that baseball, until the Baltimore Colts-New York Giants overtime game at Yankee Stadium in 1958, I mean, it was all about baseball. Football was not in anyone's mind. The National Basketball Association had teams in places like Fort Wayne and uh, Syracuse. And <laughs> Syracuse. Uh, you know, nobody knew about the NBA, uh, the NBA. Nobody really cared. And the only really other established league with prominence was the National Hockey League, but the National Hockey League only had six teams. You know, and so every, as to state the obvious, it's almost absurd to say it, everything has changed. But baseball, it's just, Baseball is, is unique. George Plimpton was my great friend, and he once said that the smaller the ball, the greater the sports writing about that sport. Well, he and I disagreed about that because I 
I think in 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 the world of literature, no game approaches baseball in terms of the people that have written about it. And think about the fact, Byron, that um, that uh, that some of the greatest writers in American literary history were best known for essays and books that they wrote about uh, about baseball. John Updike, in particular, we never had a greater essayist. And yet, who re- who remembers most what about John's writing, Mr. Updike's writing, than that famous last game at Benway Park when uh, for Ted, the last game for Ted Williams when he hit that that home run and his last at bat and became immortalized. In fact, that cold uh, excerpts from that essay rather are on the wall inside the administrative offices of Fenway Park. So, in any event, that's my view about why this is is truly America's game, and all other sports are pretenders. Well, you, you, um, I'm going to stay on that thread because I think when, when, in your last answer, I was thinking about uh, Ken Burns' documentary on baseball. Right. And I can think of no other sport that so parallel, parallels the American narrative the way baseball does and did. True. And remember in the Second World War when uh, a lot of things were shutting down, President Roosevelt wrote a letter to the commissioner of, uh, of baseball and said, I want you to keep playing. We need it. We need people to have that in their lives, even though we're gearing up and we're going to be fighting a great war. He wanted baseball to continue. When did you become passionate about baseball? Well, I think it, I, I mean, I know it's not a matter of thinking. It was May 20th, 1942. I was all of seven years of age. And my dad took me to Lane Field at the foot of Broadway in San Diego, across from San Diego Bay, San Diego Harbor, to watch the San Diego Padres of the Pacific Coast League play the Hollywood Stars. And the starting pitcher for the San Diego Padres was named Ed Middlelich. He was a fellow Serb. And my dad wanted me to know that Serbs could play baseball. So here I am, Brian, 81, still playing in the San Diego <laughs> Adult Baseball League. <laughs> I mean, it, had, it obviously, if you could remember the date, remember the circumstances. Yes. It, uh, it was, but, but you know, and I'm sure you can remember the first time you went. I always think about Governor Mike Dukakis, three times governor of, of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts candidate for president, but you spend any time with the governor, and he's a very great friend. He will tell you. That when he was four years old, his mom took he and his brother to Fenway Park. He's never forgotten it. And she was bored. She didn't like the game, but she think about this. She told four-year-old Michael Dukakis and his brother, anytime you want to come back, you can come back. I'm just not coming with you. <laughs> because four, four-year-olds could do that. And when Larry Lucchino and John Henry and Tom Werner took control of the Boston Red Sox in 2002, uh, you, if you remember, there was a lot of talk about tearing down Fenway or replacing Fenway or doing something. And there were a lot of uh, schematics and drawings and architectural renderings and the whole deal. And so I actually introduced uh, Governor Dukakis, who teaches at UCLA in the winter quarter and has for 21, 22 years, because, as he says, somebody has to do it, right? <laughs> the, other three, the, the, the other three quarters, he's at Northeastern in Boston. 
But I introduced him to Larry Lacino, and he said, he told Lacino, he said, listen, Lacino, anybody who would tear down Fenway Park should be criminally indicted. <laughs> Well, you, and well, well, they didn't tear it down. Sorry. Well, no, no. I mean, you, you, you think that, um, and I understand it's a business, but I remember um, I have I have not gone to the new Yankee Stadium, and and and, Don't. and, and probably the biggest reason is because Fenway uh, and Wrigley Field is the only place now where I can look out and go, you know. Ted Williams caught fly balls out there. Babe Ruth played right, right field here. You know, Mickey Mantle roamed, um, you know, center field in the Maggio. You can't do – I mean, there's only two places left in baseball where you can do that. It's true. And my friend, and he was my friend, and I admired him greatly, when John Lindsay was mayor of New York, remember? They, yes. They tore down the original Yankee Stadium. Here's a parenthetical you may find fascinating. I did. The original Yankee Stadium was built in 180 days. Wow! <laughs> Think about that. 180 days, and it was it was the it was the best. It was the cathedral of baseball. And had I had any say or even thought about suggesting it to the mayor, I would have said, "Don't you know? You can tear it down, but replace it as it was. Just make it new, make it modern." Which is what effectively uh, John Henry, Tom Werner, Sam Kennedy, Larry Lacino have done with 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 Fenway Park. I mean, what? We have as Yankee Stadium is just, I think, ridiculous. And here's the thing that really annoys me. You know, when they first opened Yankee Stadium, the new one where they play now, it cost $2.1 billion. Do you remember that? So they were charging $2,500 a seat for those seats behind home plate. But it, there was a Red Sox Yankee game at the stadium. It, it, it went on and on and on. They were still playing at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I remember that game. Remember, and I, it was because it was 11 o'clock here, I was still watching. And I was just fascinated because there was no, virtually nobody was left in the ballpark. And the camera close-ups of the few fans who were there, they all, most of them were asleep. But that was the first time I realized that the bleacher seats at Yankee Stadium are just, are just metal. That's all they are. They don't even have backs on them. How utterly ridiculous is that? You spend $2.1 billion, and you can't even give your bleacher fans backs to their seats? Right. Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, but, it, but, but those are all the things um, about baseball that makes baseball so interesting. If you're just joining us, uh, I'm speaking with George Mitrovich of the great Fenway Park Writers Series. And, George, um, on a... On a, on a Probably a more negative note, has baseball, in your view, done enough to address um, performance-enhancing drugs in general? Well, I think they have, finally, belatedly. Um, Theo Epstein told me one Saturday afternoon uh, before Yankees-Red Sox game in August, it was a very warm day, and he and I were, I happened to be in Larry Lacino's suite having lunch looking uh Theo came in, and we had about an hour together. It was a great, great time. I admire him so much. But he was so concerned about the failure of baseball at that point to address this more, more, uh, more forcibly that that he said that if they didn't do something about it, he would think about doing something else with his life. Imagine that. But I think they, I think they're doing as much as they possibly can. 
I mean, the problem when Theo and I had that conversation is that human growth hormones could not be detected, remember? Mm-hmm. And there, no doubt, a lot. I mean, how did the guy for the Baltimore Orioles, he had 52 home runs, the second Brady, second base Brady Anderson. Yes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good, Byron. And, and, and that never happened again. No, not even close. Not even close. That's right. No, actually. Uh, that's I, a good call. That's a good memory. You no, know, I, I remember because when Brady Anderson's hitting 52 home runs, you, you know, it, 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 the only thing that could top that is Freddie Patek hit 40. That was the only thing, that, that could probably the only thing that could top Brady Anderson hitting that's 52. Right. That's right. And he never hit 40. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, let me, but staying with the steroids, um, if, if you were king for a day, how would you handle the players who are suspected of those who have been proven to use uh, performance-enhancing drugs and their admittance into the Hall of Fame? How would you handle that? Well, I don't – look, it, it, I, I, it, it would not um, – Mark McGuire, um, Clemens, Barry, there's a whole group of them. They deserve to be at the Hall of Fame. Um, the Hall of Fame is not uh, – you know, it's not filled with saints. Uh, there are people in the Hall of Fame that were uh, wife beaters, child abusers, uh, drunkards. I mean, the, the first, we have to think about the fact, and I know you know this, that Judge Kennesaw Mountain. Ex- you're reading my mind. Was I was about a, to introduce. Was a racist. Yeah, yeah. No. Terrible, I- terrible. Racist. He did more to hurt baseball uh, or keep it stagnant, you know, than, than anybody I can imagine. So if, right. So if you can put a racist, a, a, a hater of black people in the Hall of Fame, who's to tell me that a Mark McGuire, Clemens, Barry, and as I said, on and on, that they shouldn't be there? It's just, to me, it's utterly ridiculous. And Pete Rose, most of all. But don't we have? Uh, I'm sure. I mean, you're you're closer to this than I am. But there is a something almost sanctimonious about our approach to baseball, or well, selectively sanctimonious, obviously. That if we like you, great. But if we don't like you, you know, um, uh, I mean, like you mentioned Barry Bonds, I would make the argument steroids not a, steroids notwithstanding. This is a guy. Um, the tragedy of Bonds, he would have been a 500 home run guy and 500 stolen bases without anything. Right. Yep, that's true. And the other part about Barry is that a lot of sports writers don't like him because he didn't treat them well. And that becomes another factor in deciding who gets in and who gets out. Harold Case was a very, very prominent sports writer for the Boston Globe. He voted against Ted Williams going into the Hall of Fame. He voted against Ted Williams several times. Uh, and being the most valuable player in the American League. I mean, and I, Barry Bloom of MLB.com, got very close to Barry Bonds. Really, really had a good friendship, still does have a good friendship. But most reporters and writers didn't have that kind of relationship with Barry, and I believe that that's a factor, also a factor in, in the reason that he's not yet in the Hall of Fame. Well, George, to your point about the Hall of Fame balloting, there were people, there are people, I don't know who they are, who voted 
who who voted against Willie Mays, voted against Mickey Mantle, voted against Hank Aaron. Help me out here. I mean, what are you looking for? <laughs> if you if you voted against any one of those people, they ought to take away your membership in the Baseball Writers Association of America. That should be. That should be a disqualifying act. <laughs> I, you and I agree. See, we should be in charge of this. You and I. You, you and I. Who? How do you vote against Mickey Mantle? I. <laughs> well, I, I, I have no clue. I mean, because part of it, one part of it would be ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. Other, another part of it would be just because somebody decided they didn't like Mickey Mantle or didn't approve of him or any of these other players. By the way, to your point about the sanctimoniousness of baseball, there's probably a reason for that because, Brian, you you know, I mean, you're a clergy guy. You've got to know that baseball is the only game mentioned in the Bible. Uh, I'm, ra- I'm, wa- I'm waiting. Hello? I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. That's how some <laughs> people read it. But that's incorrect. You deconstruct it, and it reads, in the big inning. <laughs> okay. Can, do you have a copyright on that, or can I use that? Or do you... <laughs> you can use it. I don't think it's original with me. <laughs> um, assess, assess, in your view, where the game is today. Well, I think in many ways the game, the game is at a very, very great place. But there are major issues. I mean, when you have a sport like baseball where the minimum wage is, what, $539,000 a year, you've got, you've got problems. I mean, and where you're paying a great deal of money. And this isn't made possible by people coming into your ballpark. It's made possible by radio and television deals. And they've changed everything. Remember Roger Kahn, the great, the great writer? Yeah. Uh, Roger, uh, who, by the way, became a very great friend of Jackie Robinson's when Roger was covering, covering the Dodgers for the New York Herald Tribune. Roger told me that when he covered the Dodgers for the Herald Tribune, before, obviously, they came west to Los Angeles and the Giants to San Francisco, he said that he was making $12,000 a year. Jackie was making 14. Campy was making 14. Hodges was making 15. Newcomb was making 16. Erskine was making 14. Carl Ferrella was making 14. He said we were all friends. We all lived in the same neighborhood. Our families did things together. We carpooled together. He said that's not true today. Ball players are all millionaires. They aren't hanging out with writers. And and. You In my lifetime, I don't know about yours, but there was a time when after the season was over, baseball players had went to other jobs. Carl Ferrillo worked at a post, post office. Somebody was a bartender in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, and on and on Mickey and on. Metal, they Mickey Mantle, Yogi, they sold cars. Right, yes. Hmm. So that's uh, that part of it is really – but that's – I gave a speech – Saturday here in San Diego to a Democratic club, a large Democratic club, in which I said that the greatest single issue facing us as a society is the wealth divide. And baseball as a sport is a part of that that issue. I'm not smart enough to know how to fix it, but there it is. But I think, I don't know how, you just have to ask yourself how much longer can this can continue. Mm-hmm. And um, But fortunately, Away from that, uh, the game on the field 
still is the game on the field. It's still the game that's played between the lines, and it is a, a fantastic game. And Ted Williams said the most difficult thing to do in sport is to hit uh, a round ball with a round bat. <laughs> and the great Tiger Woods, you know the story about Tiger Woods? Tim Kirchin tells the story. Tiger wanted to try to hit a baseball, so he was invited to one of the spring training camps in Florida and put in the batting cage, and guess what happened? He never hit a ball. Never even touched a ball. Right. He could hit the heck out of a stationary little white ball. Couldn't hit a baseball. It's a very difficult sport. Uh, in your in the time that uh, you you watch baseball, as a as an observer and a fan, who's the best hitter you ever saw live? You actually saw who's the best hitter you ever saw? Uh, Tony Gwynn. Tony Glenn and Stan Musial. It happens that even though I'm a San Diego kid, uh, Ted and I were born in the same hospital, went to the same high school, played for the same high school baseball team in different periods, of course. Uh, but by growing up in San Diego, my favorite player was Stan Musial. I loved Stan Musial, still do. And I remember the first time I ever saw him play, which was, I think, April 27, 19... 58 at the Coliseum in Los Angeles against the Dodgers, 90,000 people. Some friends, my wife and I, with friends, went to the game. Stan Musial, the first time I ever saw him play in person, Brian, went four for four. <laughs> so over many years, you think, well, maybe my memory, maybe he didn't. But you know, you can go to baseballalmanac.com and you listen to this. You can pull up the box score of any baseball game ever played. Yes. Do you want to think about that? No, I, so I've I done pulled it. up the I pulled up the box score and found out that he did go four for four. So what did I do? I printed it up on high quality quality photographic paper, carry it with me in my briefcase, and on the day the president, Mr. Obama, gave Stan the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom. I was lucky enough to be invited because of a friend of mine that worked for the president knew how much I admired uh, Mr. Musial. And so I was able to talk to Stan Musial about about that and show him uh, what I carried in my briefcase. So, But Tony Gwynn, of the people that I saw, I saw Ted Williams play only one time in a spring training exhibition game here in San Diego, but that was the only time. But Tony Gwynn was fantastic. Now you, you talk. You mentioned earlier um, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and right. and um, and then I can't help but think about uh, juxtaposing Mountain Landis with the amazing speech, in my view, the greatest uh, Hall of Fame speech ever given. In my view, was by Ted Williams. I mean, just. Right. It, it was it was just amazing, you know. And that was 1965 when he's calling for Negro players to be admitted to the Hall of Fame. I mean, it may not be a big deal today, but at the time, that was a very radical thing that Ted Williams did. It was, and Ted Williams, I think black players um, had great regard for Ted Williams uh, because of that. They knew that about him. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned Ken Burns' great documentary on baseball, uh, that documentary made Buck O'Neill a famous person. And Buck was the founder, as you know, of the Negro Leagues Museum, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, and became a very great friend of mine. I was in a lot of different places with, with Buck O'Neill, 
And uh, we brought him because the Red Sox celebrate Jackie Robinson's birthday every January 31, and I chair that for them. Mm-hmm. And we're the only team that does that. We brought Buck several times to Boston, and I remember the first time we had a private dinner the day before we do these events with high school and middle school kids to bring them up so that they're introduced to Jackie Robinson in a significant way. But at that dinner that night, among those in attendance, was Gordon Eads, then of the Boston Globe, now uh, as the official historian for the Red Sox. But he, Gordon, took me aside after the dinner, and he thanked me for inviting him, and he said that that was one of the greatest moments ever in his life, to be able to sit at the table next to Buck O'Neill at dinner. That's the kind of effect Buck, Buck O'Neill had. Now, now we... we um... We, we we said that uh, it was between Tony Gwynn and Stan Musial was the best hitter you ever saw. Right. How about pitcher? Well, I, I mean, I, I have to say Kosax is the greatest pitcher. Um, um, I saw him pitch a lot because uh, I went to college at Pasadena Nazarene mm-hmm. College, which is now Point Loma Nazarene University, now lo- relocated to San Diego. But we lived in Pasadena. Two of our kids were born in Pasadena. And so I went to a lot of games at Dodger Stadium, seeing not only the Dodgers play, but also the Angels, which also played in, uh, you know, the same ballpark for a number of years until they moved, uh, they moved to Anaheim. So Koufax would be the greatest that, that I ever saw. I, I have a good friend who's going to be on the second segment of this show. He, he and I always argue. Um, I, I say Koufax. He says uh, Bob Gibson. But I will. Well, Gibson, I wouldn't ever argue against. Right, right, right. If you force me to take Bob Gibson, I'll be happy to do so. Um, you know that you know that great story about Bob Gibson coming back to pitch in an old timers game, quote unquote. I, they ought to call it something else. I, I, my wife said, "You're old." I said, "No, I'm not." I said, "I'm older." There is a very great difference. <laughs> but when when Gibson came back in this uh, you know day in which former players played. He pitched, and he hit a guy. Do you remember that? Uh, he, he hit a guy. <laughs> and, and people were astounded. I mean, he purposely drilled the guy in the ribs. And everybody wanted to know, well, why would you do that? An old-timers game, as they call it. And he said because he remembers this guy having done something he didn't like when they were playing against each other. Wow. That's, that's a crack-up, isn't it? Well, here, here's a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a, um, a trivia question for you. You ready? Yep. Who has the highest lifetime batting average versus Sandy Koufax? And he and this player has over fifty at bats against Koufax. Honestly, I, I I I don't know. You you ready? Yes. Bill Verdon. Oh my gosh. Two sixty seven <laughs> lifetime hitter, former manager of the Pirates. Right. Four, he's over four hundred against Koufax with over, with over fifty at bats. Can you believe that? That's to me one of the amazing things about baseball. It is, it is totally, I mean, and it is, it, it continues today. There are some 230 hitters that hit 400 against the game's best pitchers. No one can possibly explain it. And by the way, because we're talking about batting, I'm one of those individuals who believes this idea of taking pitchers deep in account is utterly, totally ridiculous. Do you know what the average batting average of a major league player is with two strikes on them? Oh, it's like, it's, it's low. I know it's low. Oh, it's way low. Yeah. It's way low. 
Tony Gwynn, listen to this. Tony Gwynn, lifetime, two-strike hitting, hit 321. Only one other player has ever done that. One other player has hit over 300 on two strikes. So why would you go to two strikes? Why aren't you first ball swinging? Right. Remember remember Garcia Parra, the great shortstop yeah. of the Red Sox. Yeah. He would hit over 400 when he, when he swung at first pitches. Well, you know, I think when you mentioned Tony Gwynn, I think about Tony Gwynn the same way I think about Ty Cobb in this sense. When Ty Cobb, I think you know this story. When Ty Cobb was like in the 50s, he said, how would you hit against uh, modern-day pitching? And Cobb said, oh, 280. The guy goes, 280? I mean, you're a lifetime 360 hitter. He goes, yeah, but I'm 72 years old now. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, that, that, that's that's kind of how I feel about Tony Gwynn. Yes. No, that's, that's, that's. That's a great story. Well, listen, uh, you're never going to see the the Marston Mets, <clears throat> the team I play for in the San Diego Adult Baseball League, but my teammates will tell you, at 81, Mitrovic can still hit. I'm still a dead pool. Dead pool I was going to say, say, give me the scouting scouting report on uh, Mitrovic. Give me the... Well, I can give you names. That's that's no, exactly give me the scouting, what they will say. Give me the scouting point. Mitrovich is a dead pool ball this, hitter. So keep it so, he, nothing inside. Is that is that uh, keep it you know keep it away, low and away. No, well, no, don't put don't put, no. What you don't want that one of our uh, the pitcher one of the pitchers on our team who's actually the assistant football coach at San Diego State University, Kevin McGarry, who's in his I don't know late fifties, early sixties. But he still throws hard, really hard. And he, he told me once, he said, Mitrovich, if you ever bat against me, you will never see a fastball. Um, I, I have trouble with the junk, but I still can get around on a straight pitch. In fact, when I, I've been to fantasy camp with the Red Sox several times, and one of the years, the guy, the manager of the other team, and they're all ex-major leaguers, and I don't remember specifically which one, whenever I would come to bat, would tell the third baseman to straddle the third baseline. So, <laughs> anyway. Say something, if you would, about the great uh, Fenway Riders series. <clears throat> so the great Fenway Park Riders series was started uh, while Larry Lachino was president. We had a friendship dating back to San Diego because I chaired the Citizens Committee to get a new ballpark for the Padres. It was a very successful uh, campaign, and in fact, in 14, the Padres had both Larry and I came back. It was the 10th anniversary and, and uh, honored us, and that was a great thing. But that's we became friends, and Charles Steinberg, the great uh, vice president of the Red Sox, uh, the, the Red Sox having had such a terrible racist history, uh, wanted to confront that immediately and did so by creating the Jackie Robinson birthday tribute, which um, I have shared now for 15 years. And the writer's series came out of that. Um, I actually invited George Clinton up. Uh, it was the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Paris Review, which he edited in many ways the greatest of all literary quarterlies and there was a book published in concert with the 50th anniversary and i had george come up and everybody kind of loved it and so we said why don't we do this on a regular basis hence the writer's series uh, and i purposely called it the great fenway park writer's series as someone said you're clever enough mitrovich that you didn't call it the great writer's series at fenway park because we 
not every writer that we've had would qualify uh, in some Hall of Fame for uh, for for people in the, in the literary world. But we've had some truly, truly great ones. But George and Clifford Larry would Le- qualify, though. Go ahead. <laughs> and so Larry Lacchino very early on said, let's just don't do baseball books, and so we don't. In fact, next Tuesday, Jack Farrell, who's written a, a, a new biography of, of uh, Richard Nixon entitled Richard Nixon, The Life, who did books on Tip O'Neill and Clarence Darrell, will be our guest. Marine Dowd, the great Marine Dowd, is coming in uh, May 19th to speak to the writer series on her book, uh, uh, Voting Dangerously, A Year of Voting Dangerously. Yeah, A Year of Voting Dangerously, yes. Yeah, and I, so, look, the Red Sox are the only team in the history of sports, professional sports, to sponsor a literary series. And it's why I'm connected to the Red Sox. I want the team to do well. I I have a World Series ring. That that's a great thing to have, and I love when the team does well. However, that is not what motivates me to spend some part of every month in Boston. It's to do this literary series. I believe, to the core of my soul, that every corporation should follow the Red Sox example, which is to be civically engaged. The Red Sox have set the standard very high, and uh, and and the Padres. My my first team, the Padres, their ownership, Peter Seidler, Tom Seidler, uh, Ron Fowler, and others are are trying to emulate what the Red Sox do at a at a civic level, which is something I think all of us should should be appreciative of and also should support. And if we live in places where the pro teams aren't doing that, let's let's get on their case. Let's let's call them to an accounting because it's. The right thing, uh, it's the right thing to do. George Mitrovich, thank you, sir, for being on the Public Morality Day. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to look for. Thank you. confrontation for the second time. Aaron walked in the second inning. He means the tying run at the plate now, so we'll see what Downing does. Alex Abelt delivers, and he's low, ball one. And that just adds to the pressure. The crowd booing. Downing has to ignore the sound effect and stay a professional in pitches games. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. 
Welcome back. Continue our conversation on baseball. I'm honored to be joined by my good friend, Johnny Costa. This segment is less an interview and more so a continuation of an ongoing discussion about our mutually shared passion. Johnny Costa, welcome back to the public morality. Hey, Byron, it's always my pleasure, my friend. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, let's just start. What does opening day in baseball mean to you? Oh, man, I, I don't want to get too melodramatic, but if I make an exception, it's going to be about baseball because it uh, it's that overwhelming feeling of new beginnings. Um, it takes you back to the very best moments, some of the best moments of your life growing up, relationship with your parents and family it just brings all of that back and it's you know that whole feeling of renewal you know it's new beginnings um no matter what happened last year it all gets erased and uh and we start anew and i can't help but think i mean for me it's uh a reflection on the rest of our lives really no yeah well you know i was thinking uh as you were talking, you actually, to take your words, could we not? I want to get, I don't want to get overly religious here, but couldn't we? Could that not have been a definition of Easter? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's the uh, it's the renewal, the new beginning, the hope, the uh, uh, the the possibility of of uh, uh, of a better future uh, here and. Uh, um, and the hereafter in October, you know, and, 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 the, and the hereafter in October. But it, it, you know, don't you think that that? Yeah, that, that's. I never thought about it that way, but that's really uh, a reflection of that. And, and doesn't it always? Doesn't it also play into fan faith too? Yes, because to, to use the words of, of my of my pops, and I, I can't quote them exactly, but it was like. Uh, I'm sure for Cubs fans for many years, and congratulate the Cubbies and their fans for their championship. It, it's like faith is what it, it's believing in something that no one in their right mind would believe in, right? Right. And, and so for some franchises, I guess that's still uh, that's still the case. But it's that hope, and who knows? You know, we could come out of nowhere, the new beginning. The emergence of a new player, um, you know, what's there not to love about it? As I, as I recall, I don't think anyone at the beginning of the 2010 season was picking my beloved San Francisco Giants to win the World Series. No, or even more recently, um, how about the Kansas City Royals? Right, right. right? right. How about, how about uh, the Houston Astros in the last couple of years? Right just putting together a great core of young players. And you know what? In 2010, nobody saw the, uh, nobody saw the Cubs uh, uh, being where they would be at. I mean, before the Chris Bryants and the Addison Russells and the Anthony Rizzo's and everybody else emerged. Yeah, so right. it's, it's like that's the hope. Right. That's the faith. You don't know what's going to happen, but – it, it represents the best of our faith and our dreams. And, and it's, again, I don't want to, like you said, get overly religious or get too melodramatic, but if there's anything that'll do it, it'll be talking ball. Uh, 
Talk to me. You, you, you mentioned uh, your father briefly. Talk to me from the perspective of being a son, a father, and now a grandfather, and how that legacy of baseball has played in your life. Well, it, it's, it's like baseball was always that common thread. So speaking as a son, as the father of now a 30-year-old, my youngest, if you can believe that, um, where even if you had, you know, I mean, every father, son, every parent has, uh, has ups and downs and issues. They got to deal with the growing up years and the teenage years. But you know what, Byron, with all of the disagreements or, uh, a, a young man or a young lady starting to flex their independence and however, however much a mother and father agree or disagree with, uh, choices and everything else and all the drama of growing up the one thing you can always talk about the one thing we can always stay grounded and have a civil conversation and find common ground was always baseball it's like you can be mad at each other and then um not have that dead silence for a few seconds and then and blurt out you know can you believe what Girardi's doing with these guys with the pitching rotation, <laughs> right? Right. And you can right. always get grounded on something. Baseball was like the dinner table. It, it's 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 the it's it's one of the, the the cores, right? Everybody comes back. It represents the, the 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 hearth, the dinner table, everything like that. When you talk about what we all share, baseball is one of those things in my life, no doubt. Now I've not had the pleasure to physically meet young uh, Master Max, but I remember when he was born, he got Yankee gear for me because his grandfather was a Yankee fan. That, that's part of that legacy, right? He, absolutely. He he was, and, and you know how many times we've joked around because we always like to harken back with our impersonations, where the future number 11, Max McGee, would be a, uh, would have his uh, number eleven Yankee jersey on the, uh, the the wall of monuments at Yankee Stadium, right? And, if people, and, and of course, we did it in our best Bob Shepard. Right? Of course. And if people are wondering <laughs> why 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 we picked number eleven, because uh, one through ten are already retired, so we have to go to the next logical number. That would be eleven that we reserve for that. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I like to remind you, Giant fans, of that occasionally too. <laughs> <laughs> How is it that Bill Verdon, a lifetime 267 hitter, hit over 300 one time in his career, hit over 400 against Koufax? How is that possible? You know, that's, that's the intangible of baseball that on certain matchups, who knows? I don't know how many at-bats. He, he, he had 52 at-bats. Okay, that's respectable. If, if, if you were stepping in against Koufax, Fifty plus times. I think that that's. Uh, I think that that's uh, at least a, a respectable barometer. And who knows? That's the thing. That's the thing, Byron. It, it's it's with certain people, certain situations, the moon and the stars line up. I mean, you you tell me. That's the great thing about baseball, right? Right. Um, who of all the the Yankees in in, in the lineup, who would have picked Bucky Dent? To hit the three-run homer, right? To break the 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 you know the the, the season tie to send the Yankees into the uh, 
into the uh, the playoffs, right? It's that kind of thing. Who knows? And he he, he has forever been given a uh, um, a name, a middle name in which we cannot we pronounce. Re- we will not in Boston. That, yeah. <laughs> we will not repeat that. Um, and I think uh, I think anybody who's been following the game for any time uh, will already know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> As you know, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. You're a Yankee fan. But if you're a baseball fan, can you look at Lou Gehrig give that farewell address and not get emotional? It's just not, no, uh, it's not possible. No, e- 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 even, even Red Sox fans would, would give more than a, a tip of the hat. Um, and, and we can bring that, uh, we can bring that more recently that look at the response the Red Sox fans gave Derek Jeter in his last game at Fenway. Right. You know, and, and and the Yankees after the Boston Marathon bombing. How about the Yankee fans playing Sweet Caroline during the stretch? Right. And all the Yankee fans, or most of them anyway, on their feet singing Sweet Caroline. Because baseball is something that we can disagree on, but it creates, um, I think, this this culture and this environment where people are civil where you can have the debate and, and agree to disagree and who is the greatest, like you and I talking about Gibson and Koufax, where you agree to disagree, but, but you, you, there's, there's a mutual respect around baseball fans when they gather. And we, we related that to what? The Cigar Lounge, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, very much, where there's certain things that people have a mutual respect for, and that respect is extended into those relationships, not to where they happen to be or what they're doing or what they're watching. If you're just joining me, I am speaking with my good friend and baseball aficionado, Johnny Costa. Uh, Johnny, why? Hey, Byron, we're starting to sound like a segment from Ken Burns Baseball. That's who we are. We should have been on. (laughs) The the only thing I'm happy for is it won't be one of the Ken Burns close-ups. Because nobody wants to see that. No. (laughs) Well, as I've been been told many times, Johnny, I I have a great face for radio. Well, I'm glad glad you and I are having fun anyway, so there you go. Well, well, here's something about baseball I think is really, really unique. You know, uh, if I say to you how many points did Will Chamberlain score, you may know, you may not know. If I said how many yards did Emmitt Smith rush for, you may know, you may not know. But if, if I say 714, you know that number. Of course. Or, 50, or 56. 56. Throw out another Yankee. 50, okay. Or here's one. Here's one for you. Six sixty. Six sixty. I know that. I know the number. Or seven fifty five. I mean, you 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 know. There's certain numbers you know. And and why does baseball? Uh, even the, I mean, even some casual fans know those numbers. <clears throat> you know why do the, the why do the record numbers? Why do they stay in our mind? Because I think that they're unique, they're standalone, and people really cherish that and respect that over this, this length of time, over 100 years of compiling this. And records in baseball, man, the, those are slow. Those are slow to turn over, really, when you stop and think about it. Very slow to turn over, and I think because of that and because – of how of how 
um, th there's almost a, a reverence about people that follow the game. You know, you can't help but uh, attach yourself to those, uh, you know, statistics. And, and, and you mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned. See, I know, I know, six sixty. I but here's the funny thing. I can't tell you exactly. I think it's seven seven sixty three, but I don't know how many home runs Barry Bonds did. I think it's seven sixty three, but mm -hmm. I know six sixty. I know that number. And, and and you know you know you know you knew Hank Aaron's number. Yes, yes. Which would get us into a whole different cost. I have my own theories about that, but right now, just days before opening day, <laughs> I want to keep I want to keep the topic positive and not get into. All right, fair. Of, quite frankly, the the many ugly sides that baseball has dealt with and represented. Um, over its history. No, it, it, I I agree, and it does have some reprehensible sides. That, but uh, let in the in the in our closing moments we have together. Let's let's have some fun. Uh, and we're gonna you're gonna pick your all time Yankee team, and I'm gonna pick my all time Giants team. We'll go position by position, and then I'll may, may give me may three. I may ask you to give me three or four pitchers put, put in a rotation, um, and, and just. Uh, I'll probably ask you for a closer, even though I don't really need to do that, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, my question is, am I allowed to have New York or San Francisco, or do you want me to just stick with San Francisco? Um, why, why, don't we, why don't we trade off and make it interesting? No, we'll trade, off, we'll, trade off, we'll trade off position by position, but can I bring in New York Giant players as well? Oh, New York, well, you, you'd have to. Okay. In fact, here, I'll, I'll throw out in our closing moments, one of the very few if any criticisms that I have for AT&T Ballpark, which you know I think is an absolute shrine to baseball. If, it's, if, if, if you're doing a tour of baseball parks, you have to have uh, AT&T in San Francisco near the top of your list. But I don't care for how they have the retired numbers down the left field line underneath the overhang from the upper deck, kind of hidden away in the shadows yeah, a little bit. Yeah. With guys like Carl Hubble and Christy Madison, are you kidding me? Okay, and here, Mel Ott. Here we go. The, that, I, don't, I don't like it. Here we go then. Okay, we'll start with first base. Who's your first baseman as if I didn't know? Go ahead. <laughs> Come on. You know, Lou Gehrig, man. Are you kidding me? All right. I, I'll take my first baseman is Willie McCovey. Okay, and, and who do you take of those two? Oh, of those two? Uh, of those two? As a base, as a, are you asking me as a Giants fan or a baseball fan? Baseball fan. Well, I, I, you got to take Lou Gehrig. I mean, I mean, is there is there a first baseman you you would take over Lou Gehrig? No, no. I mean, come on. Mm. I mean, Lou. I, I think it's a. De I think that one's a, as close to a dead heat as you can get. All right, second base. Who's your second baseman? Second base. Um, oh boy, I'm gonna have to go with. Uh, I'll go uh, old school from my era, Billy Martin, number one. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Jeff Kent. I'll, I'll, okay. Now, now I did look this up. You, you know, Roger Hornsby had a heck of a year for one season with the Giants, but I, Roger Hornsby was a Cardinal, so I can't do that. So I'm gonna go with Jeff Kent. Shortstop and, and, and respect to his many home runs, the, the most for any second baseman. Correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Shortstop. Who's your shortstop? Now batting, <laughs> number two, Derek Jeter. 
Number two. <laughs> Who, if, if you don't know everybody, Bob Shepard. The legendary, legendary Bob Shepard. PA call for the captain. And I am, and actually, uh, this is because of a conversation that you and I had last year that got me rethinking about it. I'm going with Brandon Crawford. You, you have to. Byron, you have to because if there's any one single position that the Giants historically have had a void, it would be Brandon Crawford. Wait, We're going to bring what, up what, the other what, one later what, John, on. Johnny LaMassa didn't do it for you? Johnny LaMassa didn't do it for you? <laughs> no. You know what? I, I'll tell you, and, and I was at the last game at Candlestick Park. When they announced the uh, the all time Giant players after the game, they called them out from the dugout, uh-huh. and Johnny Lamaster was the only one who got booed. Yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> because they wanted him to feel at home. Yeah, they wanted. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, there you go. Um, who's your third baseman? Uh, third base was tough, man. Third base was tough. Uh, what's yours? Let me give that a little more thought. I'm going with Matt Williams. Yeah, yep, yep. I I could uh, I could see that as much as I'd like to go with Scott Brocious. Not Greg, not Greg the, Nettles. The, the, no, I said as much as I'd like to go with Scott Brocious, who has the Oakland Ace ties here in the Bay Area. Um, I'd have to go with uh, Greg Nettles definitely for his defense consistency at the plate overall for sure. Yeah. Who's your catcher? Um, man, you know something, for as much as I don't know if he could even play in today's game athletically, 10 World Series rings, with all due respect to number 20, Jorge Posada, it's got to be Yogi Berra. Well, you know, I and I will uh, I'll quote the great Casey Stingle. When Stingle was asked, what's the key to your success? And Stingle said, I never played a game without my man. And he was talking about Yogi Berra. He had DiMaggio, yep. he had Mantle. I never played a game without my man. Yeah, a great illustration of the intangibles in baseball, uh, calling the game from behind the plate, being that captain in the dugout, the, the, yeah, all that stuff. Yep. Uh, and, by, and, of course, I, I'm, I'm sorry, of course I'm going with Buster Posey on that. You have to. And like Brandon Crawford at shortstop, a position that historically – has been on the lighter side with the San Francisco Giants. Who, Dick Deets? Other than Posey, who who would you trot out there? We got Dick Deets. <laughs> I, I would take Tom Haller over Dick Deets. Yeah, and I and see, I even think of Tom Haller more as a Dodger than I even do as a Giant. <laughs> that's true, and, and you know how it is with you Giants fans. Yeah, that's once right. That's right. Somebody once they've seen somebody in that Dodger uniform, it, 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 it does real it. hard to accept a guy in black and orange. The, 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 you know, what? I'm, my only complaint with Jackie Robinson was the fact that he got traded to the Giants and he rather he retired rather than wear the black and orange. It's my only complaint against Robinson. So. Yeah, but he didn't play many games with the Giants. He didn't though. play any. He retired. Rather oh, he than, retired. Yeah, rather yeah, than yeah, wear yeah, the yeah, black yeah. and orange, he retired. <laughs> All right. Who's your um, – now, now, here's where it gets – I think it's easier for me here. Here's where it gets tough for you. Who's your left fielder? You know what? I'm not – I refuse to do that. I'm going to call out – I'm doing outfield. All right, do I outfield. Can. Okay, uh, outfield. Babe Ruth, of course. The Mick, number seven, uh-huh. 
and you know, but you know damn well Babe Ruth would be in left field here, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'll tell you, the uh, number three is uh, is hard. It's a tough cut, but uh, I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to stay with uh, with Joe D. Yeah, that's a that's a heck of an outfield. That's, uh, a, that's a heck of an outfield. Mine's easier because we have to put Bonds in left because we we can't put him in other position. Bonds is in left. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mays in center, and, and and the other and my right fielder you mentioned earlier. I'm going with Mel Ott. And, and, and I tip the cap to you, Byron, for incorporating some of the uh, the greats from the polo grounds in the mix. Hey, how about the you know you don't think you couldn't find a statue of Mel Ott to put somewhere around AT and T? Yeah, I think I think I think you could. I, I think you could. As a Giants fan, would you have been offended or questioned, not offended, but questioned, a Melot statue versus Orlando Cepeda? Oh, I don't don't think it's any, you know, it goes back to our conversation earlier. Baseball, you know, numbers are numbers, right? And Mel Ott had 511 home runs back in an era where 500 home runs really meant something. It meant something you and I had one time. Mel Ott is a 500 home run guy. I would, I would definitely, exactly. have, I would definitely have Mel Ott uh, statue over Orlando Cepeda. How about this? How about this? Christy Mathewson over Gaylord Perry statue. Oh, he. Oh, absolutely. In fact. My bro, I'll give you. I'll give you my three. I just picked. I just picked. Uh, I picked four. Oh, let's do the pitchers. Yeah. Uh, here's my three pitchers. Here's my three. I got three pitchers. You ready? Mine are Juan Marichal, Madison Bumgarner, and Christy Matheson. Those are my three guys. Yeah, and and Carl Hubble is your fourth star. Oh yeah, and Carl Hubble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can live with Carl Hubble. How about you? Okay, and and for and for the Yankees, for the Yankees, mind you, historically. Pitching definitely uh, second fiddle to those uh, to those great lineups, and I I think I uh, who's your closer by the way? Uh, I'm gonna go with Rob Nin. I have no idea who your closer might be, but I'm I'm gonna go with Rob Nin. <laughs> uh, I think that's uh, I think that's a great call. Who knows? Let's hope for you that uh, you'll be uh, debating between him and Mark Melanson this year. Oh, I, I really so, I really hope so. I would love I would so, love that debate. Uh, so I'll tell you, I, I think I'd go with uh, with uh, with Whitey Ford mm-hmm. historically. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Louisiana Lightning. Yeah, to segue into the into the into the, uh, into the 70s. Ron Guidry, yeah. Um, um, you know, and this uh, for the third starter. You know, you can throw into the mix, but I, I guess I, I'd have to go with. Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to go with. Uh, because I consider him more of a, and you know what I mean. I know by where this, you're going true, with this. A true Yankee. I know where you're going. A true okay. Yankee. Roger Clemens. Yeah, I know you got some great Yankee years. Yeah, you're not really a true Yankee, right? Uh, uh, Musina. Okay, great years as a Yankee. But, yeah, you ain't not really a true Yankee. I'm gonna go. With, I'm gonna go with Andy Pettit. Okay, and coming out of the bullpen. To the sounds of uh, the Sandman playing over the public address system, <laughs> here comes uh, the one and only Mo Mariano Rivera, the, the greatest, the, the greatest closer of, of all time. Does, I don't greatest think... closer of all time. Great, great. My favorite story about Rivera. 
um, after he gave up the game-winning hit in Game 7, lost the series to the, the Diamondbacks. The, the game-winning the game winning boop, that was a great pitch. He sawed, he yeah. sawed him yeah. off. I'm just the broke the broken bat flare that that pushed across the the winning run for the D-backs and they said uh Mo left the locker room uh eating an ice cream cone with his kid with a smile on his face and, and was just honored and blessed at the opportunity the, the you, you know that there was an internal struggle and I think but the way the guy the way the guy just carried himself, and I'll call it grace, right? Mm-hmm. And, and on a future show, we got to talk about today's athletes. You know what I mean by grace, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a dignity. It's a, it's a calm. It's the way you the, can... Derek Jeter played with, with grace. He played with grace, right? Um, I, I thought Willie McCovey played with grace. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this. It, it wasn't a, a reckless. But Hank Aaron played with grace. Joe DiMaggio played with. Grace. We got to have a conversation about all sports on that. Yes. But, oh yes. But I think we put. And, and I'll, I, I will give you credit. If I had to pick one outfielder of all that we named, and think about the many great ones we left off the list, right? Right. Reggie Jackson. He's to use the Johnny Costa criteria, though. He's not a Yankee. Sorry, yeah, and another one there, you know, Bobby Bonds could have made your list, right? I mean, you, you I thought about Bobby Bonds, but I can't, I can't, you know, if I'm a, I can't take Bobby Bonds over Mel Ott. Can't do it. No, no, just, uh, just, just statistically, uh, just statistically alone. But of all of those outfielders we named, if I was uh, doing a, a draft right now, Willie Mays is uh, is the number one. The, the, the total package, greatest living ball player, arguably the greatest of all. On that note, Johnny Costa, thank you for being on the Public Morality Day. No, no, no. The, pleasure, the pleasure is all mine.
Mac is real gone.